Let's pray. He saves from death, destruction and despair. We thank you for these great truths that we've been singing of, dear Lord. And for any who are in despair today as they look at the world around them, we pray that your word would encourage us, build us up, save us from that despair and give us great confidence in you and your character. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let me encourage you, please, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Page 586 is the page number, Psalm 73. We begin today a uh, little series of three Psalms, Psalm 73, 75 and 77, and I've called it uh, Songs from the 70s, which, you know, isn't that funny, but, you know, humour me, if you will. And uh, for those of you who remember Songs from the 70s, Bridge Over Troubled Water is this one. Glyn Chambers was a young man living in New York when he heard the message of Jesus Christ for the first time. The the good news of Jesus so grabbed him that from that moment on he was in absolutely no doubt that he wanted his whole life to count for eternity. Very quickly he determined to give his life in missionary service. In time he went to seminary to study in preparation to work in Quito, Ecuador and he raised his support and was eventually all ready to go. When it finally came for the time to go, he boarded a plane in New York and he had a brief layover in Miami before he went on to his ministry in Quito. As you can imagine, he was so excited. He'd been preparing for this moment for years. And so while he was in Miami airport on that layover, he wanted to send a note to his home to his mum. But he had no stationery with him, uh, so he picked up an old newspaper that somebody had obviously uh, left um, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the airport lounge. And uh, he looked through it and he found uh, uh, one uh, piece of paper, a bit like this, with a big advert in the middle of it, with lots of space, and he used that to write on it. And uh, he wrote a little note to his mum, telling her how excited he was about uh, all the uh, things that were coming up. And he managed to find an envelope, he popped it into the envelope, and he posted it off, mailed it to his mum. Moments later, Glyn got on the plane in Miami and took off for Quito, but he never made it. His plane hit a 14,000-foot mountain peak, burst into flames in the Colombian night and fell to the valley below, killing everyone on board. A couple of days later, as the family were preparing for the funeral, his mum received the letter that he'd sent. Uh, She opened it up, and as she read it, it told of how excited he was about finally getting to minister for Jesus Christ in Quito. And the one word that gripped her wasn't a word that he'd written at all. It was a word that was already on the newspaper and it simply said, why? Why? That word was etched in her mind. Why? Maybe like uh, I, um, you too had a a Christian friend who who died young Uh, and you're thinking, why? Maybe you've served the Lord faithfully and your ministry has been hampered due to debilitating illness and you're thinking, why? Maybe life's dealt you a rotten hand and because of that you just regularly ask the question, why? And even if it's not a personal thing, uh, we face the injustice of the world every day we turn on our television sets and and read our newspapers. This week, of course, we were remembering the uh, uh, July the 7th bombings in London one year ago. I was uh, there in London when it was happening. 
52 people lost their lives that day. One of them was a lovely young Christian man. He'd only recently become a Christian. Why? Why should he die while others, evil people, somewhere in the world who instigated the whole thing, they got away with murder? One of the theological truths that is uh, so central to us as Christians, almost unquestioned because it is so central, is the goodness of God. But when we look around at the world around us with our minds in gear, we are sure at times to question that. Is God really a good God? Well, turn with me to this psalm, Psalm 73, page 586. You'll see at the top there, it was written by Asaph. Asaph was a wise uh, uh, leader in Israel. Uh, He actually was the leader of worship in the sanctuary. One of the amazing things as we look at this psalm is the integrity and honesty that comes through it. Uh, If you're taking notes, there are three parts to the psalm. Uh, In verse 1, Asaph makes the proposal of God's goodness. In verses 2 to 16, he points out the problems with believing that God is a good God. And then in verses 17 to 28, he talks about the perspective that enables him and us to understand with integrity that God is a good God. Listen firstly to verse 1, where he proposes God's goodness. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Yet Asaph believed that God is a good God. His theology told him that God is good. That's what the Bible taught. And that's what he'd always believed. But his experience was quite different because it wasn't the good guys who seemed to be blessed by God. Look at verse 3. He said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now remember, in Jewish thought, success, good health, material wealth, they're all marks of God's blessing. And so it seemed to Asaph that God blesses the bad guys. Why is it that those who don't play by God's rules are the very ones who do very well in life, thank you very much? And why do good things happen to bad people? Is God good? Think about that and it can lead me to doubt my faith. It certainly did, Asaph. See verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. He'd almost stopped believing. My feet had almost slipped. I'd almost lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. If God really is good, why do bad people do so well? And if bad people do so well, why don't I join them? If you think those thoughts for long, you can easily lose your grip, your foothold, as he says in verse 2. You can soon think about giving up following Jesus. And Asaph's well on the way to doing that when in verses 3 to 16 he lays out the problem with believing that God is a good God. See, as we read through verses 3 to 16, look at how Asaph describes people who are out only for themselves. As we look through these verses, consider who this describes that you know, who it is in your office or among your friends or your neighbours or your family. Who does this describe? Now, these are people who have the Midas touch. Do you see verse 4? They have no struggles. And the second half of verse 4, their bodies are healthy and strong. They have Baywatch bodies, healthy and strong and tanned and fit and slim and beautiful. Yes, I am envious. And nothing ever goes wrong for them, verse 5. They are free from the burdens common to man. Redundancy is not a word in their vocabulary. No, it never happened to them. They're always lucky in love. 
They are the picture of health, verse 5. These people are not struck down by illness, you see, not plagued by human ills. And all this leads them to become quite obnoxious. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They're so full of themselves. They think of nothing, of mowing under anyone who gets in their way. Uh, second half of verse 6, they clothe themselves with violence yeah, and they're always on the make at someone else's expense, ducking and diving, scheming and, den- and conniving. Verse 7, from their coloured, callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They seem to have no conscience. Do you know people like that? They don't lose sleep over the trail of broken lives that they leave behind them. They have no concern for others. They'll happily walk all over you. See that in verse 8? They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Don't you get in my way. Don't you dare cross me. Don't cross me. That's what they say. See, it is a brilliant description of so many people in this world, in this city. And maybe right now you're thinking of someone who's just like this. If you are, there's likely to be some pretty strong emotions rising up inside you right now. If you've been exploited, demoralised, broken even by someone like this, your heart will be racing with every recollection of them and the way they hurt you, pushed you down, ruined your career, broke your heart. But what is really bizarre is that while most of the time we loathe people like this, while we detest their callous actions, and while in our best moments we certainly don't want to become what they are, still we can find ourselves envying them, wanting to be in their position, because everything goes well for them. That's verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now we've all met these sorts of people. They think they're so great, they even push God off his throne. Do you see it there in verse 9? Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Oh, I'm sure I'll get to heaven, they say. Me and the man upstairs, we're like this, we're cool. The way they speak, you get the impression that the angels in heaven are just waiting for them to arrive before they can start the party. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, verse 9, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Yeah, the world really is their oyster. And oh, the things they're going to do and accomplish, they're so full of themselves. And of course, there's only one thing worse than the person who's always bragging about all they're going to achieve. And that's the person who's always bragging about all they're going to achieve and they achieve it. (laughs) There are people like that. And they're like magnets. They attract others to themselves, verse 10. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And here's the real crisis for the psalmist in verse 11. Some people prosper even though they treat God like dirt. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? What does he know? What does he know? How is he saying that about God? But that's what they say. They treat God as if he's their slave and they get away with it. So is God a good God? Can I really believe that he's powerful and good when people can treat him like this and walk all over others and nothing seems to happen to them? It's a great conundrum. And it continues in verses 12 to 17. These people don't seem to have a care in the world. They're doing very nicely, thank you very much, verse 12. You see it there? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. And when you and I meet people like that, when you meet people who ignore God yet have everything, people who act as if they are God, 
well then you can really begin to doubt if there is a God. Or if there is, if he's good. Or if he's powerful. See, why doesn't God teach these people a lesson or two? Bring them down a peg or two. And when people are so successful, even when they walk all over God, I can be tempted to conclude that, frankly, there is no point serving God. That's verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Why have I bothered serving Jesus all these years? Or if you're not yet a believer, why should I start? What's the point of trying to live under God's rule, serving him faithfully? What's the point in all that if those who ignore God, who shun God, not only get away with it, but seem to be better off as a result of it? If you think about that for long, it will do your head in, as they say. Verse 14, all day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. There is such injustice in Asaph's world. It's the first thing he thinks about when he wakes up in the morning. That thought punishes him every day as he picks up the daily newspaper and he sees yet more injustice. It gets to him. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if a number here share Asaph's concern. You're doing your best to serve the Lord but you're wondering if it's all a waste of time. Maybe you've come this morning saying, I'll give it one last shot. One last shot. I'll go to church, but I don't see the point, really. Or maybe you're thinking of becoming a Christian, but but it's this injustice in the world that just doesn't square up. Until you can get that sorted, you're not going to follow Jesus. Now, you see, until we get some answers, it's all pretty overwhelming, isn't it? Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? Trying to understand it was oppressive to Asaph until, verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. It's a great moment. It is the turning point in the psalm. It is such a relief to get to verse 17 because from verse 17 onwards we see the perspective that enables us to believe with integrity that God is a good God. From verse 17 onwards, everything in the psalm changes. This is where this huge theological conundrum is solved. This is where Asaph can square his belief that God is a good God with his experience that the wicked get away with murder. This is where he puts them together. Psalms often have a a turning point. Verse 17 is the turning point for Psalm 73. Everything changes, do you notice, once Asaph, Asaph gets God's perspective on the issue. See, verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Entering the sanctuary of God, coming into God's presence, hearing what God has to say, looking at it from God's perspective, that changes everything. Do you ever get the wrong end of the stick? You misread a situation? I can remember being really shocked when I saw an older Christian man that I respected and admired holding hands in public with a woman who was young enough to be his daughter. I was really shocked. I you know, learned a lot from this fellow. I was really shocked until a friend of mine told me that it was his daughter. <laughs> See, until I had the whole picture, I, I was thrown by it. And on this issue of the injustice in the world, I will be shocked until I get the whole picture. Well, verse 17 introduces us to the final destiny of the arrogant and the wicked. 
the arrogant and the wicked being all those who, who live without Jesus Christ. And then the final destiny of the arrogant and the wicked could not be more different to their present state. For those who don't follow the living God, it won't always be a stroll through life without a care in the world. It won't always be a walk in the park. There will be a day when all wrongs will be put right. Now the psalm gives us three vivid descriptions, three vivid pictures of how it really is for those who ignore the living God. The first is the picture of a rock climber. Look at verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. See, it's the picture of a rock climber who's about to reach the summit, about to conquer the mountain, but then he loses his grip and falls hundreds of feet to his death, dashed on the rocks below to ruin. Moments before, he'd seemed so successful. That, says the psalmist, is the fate of the wicked. Like the rock climber, they seem to be climbing so high But when they come before the Lord God Almighty, they will be brought crashing down. The second picture is of an idyllic stroll by the seaside going horribly wrong. Verse 19. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Oh, you can imagine the report in the newspaper. A young couple yesterday swept away by a freak wave while enjoying a walk by the sea. The report would tell how they were walking among the rock pools that jut out from the coastline. When out of the blue and totally unexpected, a freak wave washed them away. The report goes on. The Coast Guard has called off the search and all hope of finding them alive has been lost. Swept away. That's verse 18, do you see? And that's the fate of... Uh, verse 19, and that's the fate of the wicked. Their life seems so idyllic and, and perfect, as, a, as perfect as a holiday stroll by the seaside. But they are, in fact, in great danger. In a moment, at the end of their lives, they'll be swept away to destruction. I've taken funerals of people like this. Life seems to be going so well for them. Suddenly they're swept away without a moment's notice. The third picture is of having a wonderful dream, verse 20. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Have you had one of those dreams that you, know, you haven't quite finished it off and it's all going very well and then you get woken up and you, you want to get straight back to sleep to see if you can catch up in your dream again? You, know, you kind of want to go back to it. Have you had one of those dreams? Or is it only me that has those? Because you can't get it back. It was never real. It was a world of fantasy. That's the fate of the wicked. On the final day, the day of judgment, they're going to wake up with a start. They're going to discover that to ignore God is to live in a dream world. And when reality bites, it will really hurt. There'll be no way back. You see, when we have this eternal perspective, it begins to answer the problem of suffering. Now, the character of God is upheld. The wicked will not get away with murder. Justice will be done. God is a good God. And we will see that on Judgment Day. The Lord does not and will not turn a blind eye to evil and rebellion. Isn't that good news? Oh yes, speaking of judgment is not an easy thing, but do you see what you're left with without it? No answer to the problem of the world. Injustice just reigns, just continues, just goes on. Isn't it good news that there's a judgment? Look, uh, keep your finger in Psalm 73 and, and flip with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to come straight back to Psalm 73 to finish off these last verses in a moment, but... 
Just turn with me to Acts 17, page 1114, 1114, Acts chapter 17. 1114. And here we see the assurance that Judgment Day is going to happen. Acts 17, verse, well, I'll read from verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. That's Jesus. He's given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus. It is the guarantee that one day Jesus will be the appointed one to judge all people. We can be sure of it because of the resurrection. If you're certain that Jesus rose from the dead, you can be absolutely sure that there's going to be a judgment day. Well, back to Psalm 73. Having an eternal perspective then changes everything and shows us that it is worth serving the Lord now, but lose that perspective and we will doubt whether it's worth going on in the Christian life. See verse 21, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, Lord. If we think that uh, this life is all there is to life, we won't serve God wholeheartedly. We will become like, as it says in, in verse 22, like brute beasts who only live for now. I was uh, thinking this week of our old, old family cat. Kiwi was his name, hardly a brute beast. He's long since dead. But it's the closest I've got to ever meeting a brute beast. He was a soppy old moggy. Stu bit stupid, really. Not, not the sharpest tool in the box, even as cats go. Like most domestic cats, all he did all day was eat and sleep. Nothing else. No, nothing else to lie for him. Take him to one side and ask him, uh, Kiwi, uh, do you have any plans for the future? What are your great hopes and aspirations for the years that lie ahead then, Kiwi? And, uh, you know, Kiwi wouldn't answer you, strangely. He wouldn't even understand the question. He lived for now, for the next meal, for the next snooze. That's how animals live, isn't it? They're brute beasts. They live for now. Asaph says, if we don't have an eternal perspective, we too will live like brute beasts, only interested in the here and now. That's verse 22. We certainly won't waste our time serving God. Remember, that was Asaph's feeling when he failed to see things from God's viewpoint in verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Why am I bothering serving the Lord? But see things as God sees them from the end. Well, then we know that God is a good God and that it is worth serving him. And while following the Lord isn't easy, when we see things from eternity, everything changes. Look at Asaph's words in verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You, Lord, guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Do you remember in verse 2, Asaph had nearly lost his foothold. He was almost ready to give up the Christian life. Verse 23 is why he never did. Because the Lord held on to him. I won't be at all surprised if there's one or two here who... Yeah, you're, you're at the end of your tether in the Christian life. Be encouraged. The Lord is holding on to you. When uh, I collect uh, our little boy, Joshua, he's three years old, when I collect him from nursery up at Hallam, 
uh, he, uh, as we turn the corner, he always wants to walk on the wall. It's not a very high wall, but it's fairly high for him. And so as I lift him up onto the wall, I always hold onto his hand. I won't let him do it on his own. I always hold onto his hand so that even if he wobbles, he won't fall. I've got a good grip on him. That's verse 23. God is a good God. A loving Heavenly Father who's got a grip, a hold on his children. A gracious God who will guide us right through this life and take us to glory, verse 24, where injustice is finally dealt with once and for all. What a magnificent transformation in this psalm. What a transformation from verse 2 and 3 to the end of the psalm. Look at things as the Lord sees them and not only do we know that God is a good God but we know that God is a good God caring for his children. Notice that from wondering why he bothered to follow God in verse 13 Asaph delights in being in God's presence in verse 28. As for me it is good to be near God. From questioning God's goodness in verse 15, Asaph wants to tell the whole world how great God is. Verse 28, I will tell of all your deeds. And this transformation came about through having an eternal perspective. Look, in this week when we've remembered the the anniversary of the London bombings, a week when we could so easily question God's goodness, see things as they really are, and you'll be wonderfully reassured that no one gets away with murder, Get an eternal perspective on life because it is the only way to make sense of this crazy old world that we're living in. Let's pray together. Surely God is good. I will tell of all your deeds. I'm always with you, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. We thank you, our Lord and God, for these great truths that have reminded us if we already knew them or taught us if we didn't know them for the first time. That you are a good God that you don't turn a blind eye to evil and wickedness, that you will bring all to book one day. We thank you for that very, very good news. We thank you that it changes everything for us and we thank you that it assures us not only of our own joy in the new creation but of your character being upheld and being glorified. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's